Welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Windsor. I'm joined today on the podcast by novelist Chibundu Anozu. Her first novel, The Spider King's Daughter, was published when she was just 21 years old. It won the Betty Trask Award and it was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Commonwealth Book Prize. Her third and latest novel, Sankofa, was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction Futures Prize, was an Amazon Book of the Year, and was also a Reese Witherspoon's Book Club pick in 2021. In this episode, we talk about the inspiration behind Sankofa, about how Chibundu's writing process has changed over the past 10 years, and we also talk about her role as one of the judges on the Women's Prize Trust Discoveries Prize 2023. Now, this prize is open to women writers in the UK and Ireland who are unpublished and unedited, working on a novel in progress in any genre. The winner will receive an offer of representation from Curtis Brown and £5,000. But that's not all. The shortlisted writers will also receive mentoring from Curtis Brown as well as some other prizes. The full details are on their website, which is womensprizeforfiction.co.uk forward slash discoveries. And I'll pop a link to that in the show notes. But before you rush off and write those words or polish up those words, do listen to this episode in which um, Chibundu also gives a little insight into the kind of things she'll be looking for as she judges the prize. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Chibundu. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Um, I was doing a little bit of research before the podcast and I hadn't quite realized, I knew you were very young when you published your first book, but you were initially signed at 19 and then you published at 21, making you the youngest ever female author that Faber and Faber had ever had. This is correct, but I would like to say I'm still very young now. <laughs> you are yeah. still very young. And Thank I think that's you. why I was very, very surprised. But um, it's just it's just really interesting to me. We're going to talk a little bit today about your role as a judge on the Discoveries Prize. And I saw that. I thought, oh, gosh. I mean, what better person, apart from someone who has has um, has also won many prizes themselves, but who, um, who was discovered quite young to be involved in such a prize. Um, but... One of the things I wanted to start with today, I'm really curious whenever I speak to a writer who works across multiple disciplines, which you do, you're a musician and you're a filmmaker, um, you're also a journalist and an academic as well. Um, when you're drawn to um, to storytelling, is it really clear to you from the outset when something sparks your curiosity, which medium that you're going to work in? Hmm. I mean, yes, it's usually quite clear. I think sometimes something could be a short story that you think is a novel for example Mm. and then it doesn't have a lot of legs and then it loses momentum by like page seven so you're like ah maybe this wasn't meant to be a novel um but generally speaking it's quite clear I think um so the film project I worked on for example Dolakwa is fine was an adaptation of a short story I'd written Mm. and then it's sort of lent itself very easily to a short film format so the short story we made a short film um so yeah I mean it's certainly quite clear you know if I want to write a song I didn't start writing a song I think this could be a novel having said that I have written songs inspired by the themes in my novel so Good Soil for example that was my first single I released that was like based on the themes of identity and mm-hmm. belonging that you know Anna Anna goes through, I guess, in the novel. Mm. 
Yeah. And and am I right in thinking that Sankofa was was originally inspired by PhD research that you were doing? Yes, that's correct. So I was doing research on a group called the West African Students Union. And what I found so interesting about this group was that it nurtured um, a lot of men, and it was mostly men, though there were some women as well, who went on to become very famous West African politicians. So Kwame Nkrumah, um, who's one of their most famous alumni, he was the vice president of the WASI while he was a student in London. And it was this very political students group led by students, student-led. I mean, they had a president that was older who was called Ladiposholanke, and he um, was, I suppose, like a constant force throughout the years. But the actual day-to-day running and the agenda of the West African Students' Union was very student-led. And, you know, um, it was sort of like a a training ground for nationalism and nationalist ideas and wanting independence from Britain and all of that. And then these students who had had all these big ideas as students, when they returned to West Africa, a lot of them actually put these ideas into practice. There was something, you know, I think it was, um, gosh, who was it now? It was one of the um, their Caribbean mentors. Wow, it's been a while since I did my PhD. But he, co- he coined the term praxis, which was like mm-hmm. putting into practice sort of the ideas and ideology that they'd been um, um they'd been thinking about. Maybe George Lamming, I'm not sure. Anyways, um and what I found really fascinating was that this group has almost been entirely forgotten. It was in Camden Town, so it was in a building that is very accessible in London. And there's not a plaque on it. There's just nothing to commemorate it. And yet it was so important. It had this very important role to play in the emergence of nationalism in West Africa. And yes, it's largely been forgotten. And I and I thought I want to sort of explore this story in a novel, but sort of give it a more human context. So the politics is there. But of course, when these students came, a lot of them had personal lives. A lot of them mm-hmm. did have affairs with white women. And it was quite exciting for them because in the context of West Africa, even where it was not necessarily like apartheid South Africa, for example, where it was illegal to have a relationship with a white woman, you know, in the context of Lagos or, Ga- or Accra in sort of the 90s, 30s, 40s, you know, you just wouldn't have had access to sort of socialise. Most of them wouldn't have had access to socialise with sort of white women. So when they got to England, it was like, oh, this is exciting. Let's <laughs> let's date outside our race, yay. Um, and then what happened in many instances, not all, of course, but in many instances, sometimes... Um, and I met people like this. Sometimes they would have affairs with white women. The women would get pregnant and then they would return to West Africa after their studies were over and, you know, just never been seen or heard or heard from again. So I found those, I found the politics of the group interesting, but I also mm-hmm. found like the stories I discovered around their personal lives also interesting. And I guess I wanted to marry the two. Yeah. And that brings us to Anna, your protagonist, who uh-huh. is in her late 40s at the time of the novel uh-huh. um, and at a real turning point in her life, newly separated, has had probably in some ways quite a passive life up until uh-huh. this point. Um, and her mother's recently died and and she's had her father's name, but no, no real other information about the fact that he left and went back to West Africa. Um, and I guess I was really interested about like, what was it like for you? You were born and raised in Nigeria. Um and you came to the UK as a teenager, um, to put yourself in the shoes of of Anna, who is raised as the only black person in her her family, um, with with no black community around her. Huh. 
I mean, I do have some experience. Again, it's not a, it's not a conscious thing about how your own personal experience affects what you write. But I do have mm-hmm. some experience of being the only black person. So I went to, when I moved to England, I went to boarding school in Winchester and I was the only black person in my year. So it was about, I don't know, maybe 70 girls or you know, 80 mm. girls or something, but I was the only black person in my year. So that sort of being different. Um, I mean, fortunately for me, I had an experience where I'd grown up prior mm. being surrounded by black people. So even though I was I mean, curiosity is strong, but there was definitely a lot of, actually, there was a lot of curiosity around my hair and around, hey, what do you eat? And this, like, it was almost sort of like you're a, in a National Geographic project, you know, in your first six months, everybody's asking you these questions about Africa. And and also there are a lot of assumptions um, you know, that they have. And I mean, Anna faces that as well, but obviously to a much more, um, to a much more um, exaggerated or just a much higher level but there was that sort of all these assumptions I think there was things about English for example I remember some people being surprised that oh you know you speak English fluently and I thought wow these people actually don't know about something called the British Empire these people like I'm like you don't know about how you know your ancestors used to sit at home and then decided they must go around the world teaching everybody English <laughs> it's like <laughs> um, but they, they don't um I mean maybe they might have had an awareness that India was a colony perhaps but like there's there's just not that um so I guess, you know, and again, a lot of these debates are now coming up about decolonizing the curriculum and making sure that, you know, um, it's taught. So you're not surprised when you mm. meet a Nigerian who speaks English fluently. Um, yeah. And and as part of obviously the the process of writing this novel, you had to create an entire country, uh, Bamana. Oh. Um, was that very freeing to have to create something from scratch, or was it was it quite um was it quite a lot of pressure? I mean, so it's not super from scratch. So Bamana is mostly based on, on Ghana, not entirely based. Because I also thought that the story of um, Kofi slash Francis or Francis slash Kofi, who is Anna's father, who starts off using his using the English name he's giving at birth, which is Francis, and then has this whole personal journey where he changes his name to Kofi to reflect his African heritage more. Um, the story of her father, who becomes the first prime minister of Bamana, is a story of many African countries where you had a lot of independence leaders coming with a lot of optimism, coming with a lot of promises, coming promising heaven on earth. And, you know, we're going to seek you first, the political kingdom. That was one of Kwame Nkrumah's um, maxims. And so there was all this optimism. And in not all, but in quite a few countries, there was a letdown. There was a promising and not delivering. There was a taking charge of the state and using it as a personal personal fiefdom and, you know, all of that. And so a Bamana could be Ghana, but it could also be a lot of other African countries who had that sort of story of optimism and then a decline in, in optimism. Um, but then also, because Ghana is also a very real country, by making Kofi the first prime minister, if I'd said Ghana, I feel like the real historical figure of Kwame Nkrumah is too outsized, you know, mm. and, and the first of anything. So, for example, if you say in America, the first president of America is going to be George Washington. Like you can yeah. write an alternate history where you superimpose a figure, another figure to become the first president. But the real George Washington is always going to be fighting with your fictional character. And yeah. so I felt it would be the same if I would said, OK, this is Ghana. Once I say 
Kofi and Jay. It's like, you know, the first prime minister of Ghana is Kwame Nkrumah. So like Kwame Nkrumah would be stalking, would be stalking my narrative. Um, so I was like, no, it's better to have it as a made-up place that draws inspiration from Ghana and other African countries, but it's not Ghana. Mm. And I mean, there's small things I do like, like with the, so for example, I say <clears throat> they eat something called Mopane worms, for example, which are eaten in South Africa. Um, so they're not they're not eating in Ghana. So like I do sort of place names and like where Kofi lives is called Guadalite. And, and Guadalite is a real place um, where the Congolese dictator, I don't know what you want to call him, he stayed in power for a long time, Mobutu, where he built his palace for his pleasure palace. Um, so... Yeah. Uh, I did feel like I was getting little nuggets of bits. Um and even Segu the capital mm. is is a is a place in what's well, very similar sounding place to a place in Mali is that is that right? Yes. So yeah. now so present day Accra is um sorry, present day Ghana used to be so Ghana used to be called Gold Coast under the mm. British Empire. <laughs> and then when they got independence Kwame Nkrumah and whoever decided that the name would become Ghana. Now, Ghana is named after an ancient West African kingdom that is not geographically where Ghana is today. Right. And so I did the same thing with Bamana. So Bamana used to be called the Diamond Coast. So sort of places were named after the natural resources yeah. that, you know, imperial powers would extract, would extract from them. So Bamana used to be called the Diamond Coast. And then it was, the name was changed to Bamana, which is an ancient West African kingdom also. And then the capital of that ancient West African kingdom was Segu. And so mm. yeah, the capital yeah. yeah, and actually there's a really beautiful moment in um in the diary that um that Anna finds where um where Francis is reading about this, mm. this book given given to him by a, a white <laughs> African academic about mm-hmm. um the history of all the different tribes and, and that yes. name, the name stands out to him. Yes. Um well so um as well, Anna herself is, you know, it goes on this journey, journey of, of discovering her identity and these two mm-hmm. parts of herself. And there's a really interesting moment um, in which she's she's in Bamana and she's speaking to her estranged husband, and he asks what she's discovered there, and she says that she's discovered that she's white. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a really interesting thing. She she appears throughout the novel in some ways so isolated from everybody around her. You know, mm-hmm. even her own daughter, who's white passing, mm-hmm. um, sort of can't relate to anything that her mum experiences in some ways. Mm-hmm. And she goes to Bamana expecting in some ways to feel a strong affinity. In many ways she does, but she also feels like an outsider there as much as she mm-hmm. does in London in some ways. Yeah. And I just, mm-hmm. I just the, this this whole idea is, is really fascinating and... Um, and so, in a way, um, I guess I was wondering, like, in terms of 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 her self discovery at the point of life she's in uh, in her late forties, um, having lost quite a lot of her identity through marriage and other things yeah. as well. Um, that rediscovery at that point, um, trying to, I guess, work out who she is, both from the past and going into the future, which I guess brings to the name Sankofa, the idea of of looking back at the past. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I mean this Sankofa bird is is a I suppose it's a mythical bird. It's kind of like the phoenix. It does something, how like the phoenix rises from the ashes, but it's also like a metaphor. Mm. Um so the Sankofa flies forward with its head and its feet facing backward. Mm. And it's the idea that so I think Sankofa literally means go back and get it or go back and retrieve it. 
Um, and it's the idea of you can move forward um, without forgetting what's in your past. So you still carry what's in the past, but you, you move forward. And I think it's um, I think it's a very powerful concept. And I, I honestly feel you should have the same sort of global stature as other mm. sort of world concepts, like how you think of yin and yang, or even sort of like the image of the phoenix, sort of that rising from the ashes and that pattern. And why I think it's so powerful, I think it speaks so powerfully to debates that are happening today. So it's, it's interesting how um, you have this tussle between people, for example, wanting to commemorate slavery or wanting to commemorate acts of racism and people saying, oh, well, no, but we just need to move forward now. That happened a long time ago. We just need to move forward. And I think the Sankofa bed captures that tension in that, yes, we need mm-hmm. to move forward, but we can't forget what's in our past. We can't forget what's in our past, but we need to move forward. And so it's like, it's it just, it holds it in equilibrium, tension mm-hmm. between needing to move forward, but not forgetting what's in your past. And there's a, such an interesting thing with as she's starting, she gets an opportunity to meet and start to get to know her father. Mm-hmm. And there is that tension within him, this, you know, this Francis that he once was, this mm-hmm. idealist young man who mm-hmm. went to London to study and whose diary she reads and who she feels she gets to know. Mm-hmm. And this this man sort of after 30 years running a country and the man he's become and those mm-hmm. those two men together that create that tension that she can't quite reconcile. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. I guess it's also just a general human conundrum. Can any of mm-hmm. us ever go back to who we were in the past? And, you know, Anna can go back. Anna can go back to the woman she was before she met her husband. And that sort of pushed her in on another path that she wasn't expecting to go on. Um, and, and yeah, same. That's sort of like like a question, I suppose, throughout the book. That isn't necessarily answered, but is yeah. posed. <laughs> But so let's talk a little bit about what it was like as well to publish Sankofa because um, obviously it's your third novel. Um, mm-hmm. You've won many, many prizes. A very successful novelist. I haven't won that many. You keep saying I've won many. I'm like, really? Have I? <laughs> I I've been nominated for many prizes. Nominated, so nominated for many prizes. Very different. <laughs> From winning so like you go to the party and you drink the champagne but you do not well I don't drink champagne so you drink the non-alcoholic refreshments on mm-hmm. offer but you do not get the check okay uh, <laughs> well I wanted to ask you about about what it was like where um to to be picked for the Reese Witherspoon book club pick which it was for um in 2021 was that in terms of the publishing process did that change very much for you in terms of eyes on the book what was that oh like? yeah, yeah. It, it was revolutionary it changed everything in America I think here I don't know how much of um an impact a Reese Witherspoon book club pick has here like in my bump up sales a little bit but like in America <laughs> it's it's an entirely different ball game in mm. fact so my American publicists were were amazing they just had um, they put a lot of energy behind the book. I remember the first um, the first meeting we had on how they were going to publicize um, Sankofa. And my publicist there, her name is Meg, she was like, this is the best book I've ever read in my life. And I was like, okay, you are <laughs> probably exaggerating, but that is the exaggeration that we need to make this book a success. You know, if everyone you approach it, like this is the best book I've read in my life. I was like, yes, we need that energy. Um, and so, um, I mean, I, d- I don't know how the sort of logistics of it works, but anyways, I was picked 
And I remember you find out, you don't find out immediately, you find out a little bit before, and then you have to keep it a secret. And, <laughs> you know, she called me at like midnight. And I was like, why is Meg? Obviously, it's not midnight in America, but it's like, why is Meg calling me at midnight? What's going on? And so anyways, I call her back and it's like, okay, I know it's late there, but I just had to tell you, you'll be picked by the race club. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And what was even most amazing about it was, and, you know, the book got picked for other things as well. It was like an Amazon, um, I don't know, book of the month sort of selection. So I also had a billboard in Times Square, which I, which I never Ooh. got to see, but I have like a, a photograph of, of Sankofa in Times Square. Oh like my goodness. No, I'm telling you, it was, it was very... Um, it was it was very exciting. But then also what was strange about it was because obviously it was during the pandemic or during the height of the pandemic. So like mm-hmm. I couldn't travel to America or anything. It was just all these amazing things were happening for the book. And I mean, I I've, I enjoyed it, but I enjoyed it from afar. Um, but no, it made such a difference, like the sales figures, everything. Such, such, and just the interest, interest in the book. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's really incredible, isn't it? And I think <clears throat> that's um, sort of pr- probably brings us on a bit to talk about the Discoveries Prize. There's something quite special that prizes and things like book clubs, which in in a, I mean, is it is it is it possible to say that even Reese Witherspoon's book club is getting up there in terms of like almost like Oprah in terms of how she can affect sales, right? In terms of I mean, she's really really yeah. what she's doing is massive, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think and anything that puts um it's, that shines a spotlight on books because it's so difficult to sort of get space and attention on a book yeah and also and also because I suppose I think Sankofa is fast paced ish but it's not a thriller it's not yeah. a, you know like so like when you feel like you're not writing in those genres that are mm. sort of instantly sort of popular um it always helps to get such an endorsement um yeah definitely yeah well, let's talk a little bit about the um, the Discoveries Prize for 2023, which you are one of the judges of, um, alongside Kieran Millwood Hargrave and uh, Kate Moss, who's the founder of mm-hmm. the Women's Prize. Um, and it's also run in conjunction with Curtis Brown as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a little look. I mean, the, the prizes are really quite incredible because they're all really about nurturing new mm-hmm. writers, aren't they? Yeah, I think, well, yeah, that's excellent that that sort of mentorship is attached as well. It's not just giving the winner a check and saying, well done. Um, sort of, and even the runners up as well get yeah. sort of time with agents, those on the short list and I think the long list as well. So it's not just about the winner. And I think, yes, that word is very important, that sort of nurturing. And also, it's not even about about age, actually, because I know you talked about sort of me being published young. And obviously, yes, it's open to to younger writers I think it's it's 18 I think I'm not sure about I that, think but that I think yeah are, I think it's at I think 18, it's, yeah. it's from 18 and upwards but I think what's also great is that a lot of older women also mm. um submit as well so women in their 60s I think one of one of the years on the shortlist they had a woman in her 60s or maybe even early 70s and I, it was just the idea that and she hadn't published anything before mm. and just that idea of like it's not too late for anybody who's sort of been having this dream of being a writer and I also like how I think you only have to submit two chapters or three chapters or up to 10,000 words. So it's not like a huge chunk of writing. So it's not like you have to have finished the novel. And in fact, I know someone who was on the long list last year and she hadn't completed the project. And she used the discoveries entry almost as a way to say, you know, is this any good? Mm. And 
then it sort of gave her that boost that she needed and that boost of confidence that oh wow out of all these people that submitted my work was picked and I think especially for when you're starting or at the start of your career that someone else saying your work is good goes a long way because you're sort of writing by yourself and you're all that sort of self-doubt is like is this any good um so yeah definitely um yeah people who are listening um yeah go for it go for it and so what um um what in particular do you think you and the other judges will be looking for in those in those submissions? It's always a difficult thing when people ask, you know, what are you, what are you looking for? Because obviously there is, there can never not be a subjective mm. aspect to this, you know. So what kind of writing I'm drawn to is going to be different from the type of writing another judge is drawn to. But um, do we have like an objective set of of rules? I think. For me, as a judge, I think stories that have momentum, and I don't mean plot, I just mean when you start reading, there are interesting details that make you want to read on. So sometimes it's actually just the character. You think, oh, well, this is an interesting mind. Um, or sometimes it's the setting. and You think, oh, that's sort of an unusual, unusually described, or that's very well described, that's very evocative. And so just any sort of momentum in the story. So it's that's not about genre. That's just more about the writer picking details that will make the reader stop and say, ah, okay, that's interesting. I want I want to see to see what happens. Um what else do I look for? Um I think language as well, in that sort of just paying a little bit of extra, just a little bit extra. Um so, you know, so sometimes things that Annoy me when I read is like if and it's not a rule, but like if every sentence, unless it's like a really big stylistic choice. So again, there are no rules. But if every single sentence, like you haven't noticed that you've started each sentence with therefore, 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 or you haven't, and so it's just sort of small things like that where you yeah. read over and sort of just 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 sort of polish things a little bit. So like, um, I guess looking for work where the writer has not submitted something that is probably a first draft and maybe mm. you've just gone over it just a little bit to polish obviously not perfect but that you know you've just gone over a little bit to make sure and I mean that that's just a very simple one where like you're you're starting every sentence the same way you've done it unconsciously you haven't realized and then you read over you're like oh I've started every sentence with therefore maybe I can change the second sentence so it's not just therefore he did this and therefore she did that and then then is another one that is like I'm writing another novel like now. I know I've started another project, and then is like a word that you're like, oh, I, then, 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 then everything is then. <laughs> Find another way to say something else happened. Then, then, then. Um, oh. So yeah, that sort of. Um, I am deep in the middle of a redraft at the moment. I'm mm. very nearly done, and yes, <laughs> <laughs> that is all I can say. <laughs> I started. I could. I couldn't even count how many times I started the. A sentence with she. Um, <laughs> yes. And that was something that I was definitely going back and fixing quite. It was quite a big problem for me. Um, I do wonder, I do wonder if we all as writers in a way have some kind of um, our own particular language ticks that, mm-hmm. that pop up every now and then and then we just need to become aware of and, mm. uh, and fix in our redrafts. <laughs> um, and so you're working on another novel, are you? You're working on your next Yeah, novel? but just very early days. Not like... Yeah. I mean, I'm not um 
who writes super fast? Who writes super slow? So my next actual project is a children's book, which um, has been completed and at some point publication dates will be announced and all of that. So I did want to try my hand at uh, at something new. So my next actual project is a children's book. Um, but then in between now and the publication of that, they're sort of like, hmm, sort of tinkering with novel ideas. But you know how, um, and obviously you're a writer, so you must know, like sometimes you start something and you're still like, hmm, this is the early days. I don't really know what this is. Yeah. Maybe it's a short story. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah, that's sort of that stage. Um, and so you've obviously been writing for quite a long time now, even though you are incredibly young. Um, do, has your process for sort of sitting down and actually getting the work done, has it changed much over the years? Okay, well, let's not exaggerate. I'm not that incredibly young anymore. I'm now in my, I'm not in my 30s, but I will take... Early 30s, early 30s. Uh, early, okay, I'm 31, <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll take young, you know. <laughs> okay, let's calm down. You sound like my American publicist. He's incredibly young. <laughs> well, well. Has <laughs> um, my process changed? I mean, not really. I write at home. I'm, when I was younger, I used to be, you know, like a bit precious about my writing. I'd say I could only write at night because, you know, nighttime has a special quality of silence and blah, blah, blah. And then you, you very quickly realize that you are awake when everybody's sleeping and you're sleeping when everybody's awake and why would you have to do that where you're not an emergency doctor or something like that like there's (laughs) no actual reason for you to do that um and so now generally I mean I try to write every day one thing that really helped I listened to this podcast called always take notes and there is this um they interview different writers every every week or every two weeks and they talk about their process and then they had this writer who's written historical fiction I hadn't heard of him, but he'd written and sold lots of books. And he was saying, and I felt personally attacked, he was saying that writers who write sort of so-called literary fiction, he's like, he does not understand that they are just not serious people. That why would you take five years to write a book? That then you're not serious about making (laughs) a living from your writing. Because if it takes you five years to write a book, how much is the advance going to be? By the time you split that into five years, that's like, I don't know, £3,000 per year or whatever. And he was talking about how you sort of need to, if you want to write professionally and sort of produce a bouquet, whatever, whatever, which will allow you to earn money to continue writing if you want to sort of do it full time. That, you know, he suggests anyway, you need to sort of set to yourself some sort of daily um, word limit, so that word target, so that when you sit down to write, and I think his target every day was 3,000 words. He's written like 20 novels. Ooh, and I was like, I mean, whoa, no. 3,000. No, that's I was like, exactly. I was like, <laughs> that is really high. That 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 is just super high. No, but um, I decided to be like, no, 3,000 is too much for me. And then I think I tried a thousand and then I was like, a thousand is, is still too much for me. And then I said, okay, 500. Every day I sit down to write Monday to Friday, treat this like a nine to five. I aim to write at least 500 words if I go over great. And then what happens is that it actually just becomes like a science. So if you have five days in a week that you're working Monday to Friday and you're writing 500 words, then you have 2,500 words in the five days. And then in four weeks, in a month, you have 10,000 words. So if you're writing 10,000 words a month, average novel is 60,000 words, 70,000 words. You're soon like, oh, 
I can write a novel in a year. And then you suddenly see how, and you wonder, mm. how do these people do it? How do these people do it? How do they write a novel? How is their novel coming out every year, every two years? Stuff like that? Well, yes, because you sort of just have to treat it like a bog standard job where you yeah. have targets met and this is that and the other. And okay, so I might not be able to do 3,000 words, but even if you, it's that consistency, even if you, and I think before I just used to sort of sit down and write with the fluency. Sometimes I would write a lot more than 500 words and sometimes I'd write a lot less. And now, even when I feel like it, when I don't feel like it. Because the thing is, you can always redraft and you can always edit. And that's his point, that the hard, the most difficult part of the process is getting that first draft. And so that if you sort of treat it in that box standard, I'm going to just sit down and write 500 words every day. Um, you'll soon be like, oh, my novel has grown. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like not allowing a sort of any too many precious feelings in the way uh-huh. of just getting the uh-huh. work done, essentially. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now you can allow the precious feelings back in when you have a draft. And <laughs> look at every single word and see if it's right. And then get very precious. Yes. <laughs> Which I hope everyone listening will do before they send in this their uh their uh, submissions for the discovery. <laughs> please do get precious um but yeah so that's interesting so do you now you now stick pretty pretty well close to a to a 500 word a day target if you can yes if I can I mean obviously you know some days it just doesn't happen but you know you sort of try that and then it's so and I mean that's that's how I finished the the children's book Mm. um and it was the first time I tried it so I I didn't try it with Sankofa Sankofa took me like years to write (laughs) um and yeah I mean you were also Doing a few other exactly. things at the same time. I was doing I a mean, PhD and I was doing yeah. all these other things. So I guess this children's book is the first book that I've written from start to finish where I've been writing full time. Oh, and so I thought, okay, let me let me give this, treat this like a day job every day, sit down at your desk and yeah. have a word word target. That's so interesting. So did you enjoy treating it like a job, do you think? Like in terms of process, like did you did it feel kind of quite satisfying? I was astounded by the result. I was astounded that I could write a book so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was. I, I, <laughs> it's almost like how when somebody suddenly gets on a ten-step program and then now they just start <laughs> evangelizing to everybody about these are your ten steps to decluttering your house or yeah. whatever, whatever. Like, and it's like <laughs> these are the ten steps to writing a novel. <laughs> oh, oh, it's fine. We're everyone. We're all here. We're all here listening to this, wanting to know what the ten steps are. No, but this is so. This is so interesting, isn't it? Because. Um, I mean, you were writing a PhD at the same time as doing Sankofa. Uh-huh. I mean, of course it took you a while. I mean, uh-huh. it's a it's lot true. of work. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I guess I'd always bought into the idea that just like my fiction came more slowly. Mm. And it was like, well, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? That where we get these ideas into our uh-huh. head about how things should be written. And I think there's uh-huh. probably quite a lot of mythology around uh-huh. perhaps, you know, like that writer you were talking about was saying, you know, around literary fiction uh-huh. having to take quite a long time. Uh-huh. Um, really, I wonder if some of that is just because, you know, a lot of authors just not pay very much. They have to do a lot of other, work other things at the same That's time. That's a good point. That's a good point. But then also I look at the older generation of writers. And it's something I do. Margaret Atwood mm. is incredibly prolific. Yes, very I mean, prolific. Hilary Mantel, before yeah. she sort of blew up with Wolf Hall, had also been incredibly prolific. Very prolific, yeah. Um, you know, that sort of, of generation. And I, I mean, because there are still some people that write full time and 
don't have that same prolificness. And I don't know if if they just brought it different. I mean, they must have had some sort of more structure. You can't produce a Penelope Lively or Pen- Penelope Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. who sort of started in her, I didn't know, like her 50s. I think her first book was published when she was 50-something and yet still was also very yeah. prolific. Anita Bruckner, who also had, uh, I think she had a job in the Courtauld or somewhere. She had a job as an academic somewhere and was still also incredibly prolific. I know, T- Tessa Hadley, the same, you know, she yes, yes, didn't yes. start publishing until her 40s mm-hmm. and she's, you know, published many, many books now. Yeah. Yeah, I think you need some of that, um, that slog. Yeah. That slogging <laughs> through. Oh, well, um, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, I am... I'm so excited to to see who the Discovery Prize discovers this <laughs> year. Um, and so do um, I'll put the link in the show notes for anyone who wants to read the details of who is eligible to enter. I believe it's over 18 in uh, the UK and Ireland, I believe, but I will double check that and I'll put the link in the show notes. And the um, the closing date um, is the 15th of January. So uh, not too long away. So if you've got 10,000 words or thereabouts, knocking about, and you want to polish them up, now is the right time to do and it. And I think it can be under 10,000. I think 10,000 words is the upper limit. So don't feel like, oh, I have 6,000, and so now I can't enter. So it's just 10,000 is the upper limit, but don't turn, don't count yourself out if you don't have. Don't. And also, there is enough time for anyone listening when this goes out. There is enough time to put in 500 words a day. <laughs> there is enough time to do the method. <laughs> There is. <laughs> the Chibundu method. This is time to trademark coining. Um, yes. Um, well, on that excellent uh, note, um, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs>